Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I get to walk us through this text this morning. Uh, you might think about the first time that you recognized that you were um, a part of your family and not some other family, when you realized that all of a sudden your family was a little bit weirder than all the other families, and you're kind of and you're part of it, and that's, you can't really get away from that. I remember the first time I noticed that was actually I was in elementary school, and I was walking in line, and I remember getting to the end of the, where we were walking, and I turned around, and there's this whole group of kids behind me making fun of how I walked on my toes. And I kind of began to realize that, oh, all of us trouts walk on our toes. And I went home, and I watched my mom and dad walk, and they walked on their toes, and I was mad at them for making me walk weird, and so... Um, and that, that happened in high school again. Every kind of new environment I go to, people notice that I walk weird and they kind of make fun of me for it. And depending on how I'm feeling, I get really offended or I just kind of make fun of them back and sin too. So I don't really know. But you, but you kind of recognize the way that people walk. And I remember going to um, Europe one time and we're kind of getting some cultural training. They're saying, now be careful because Americans walk differently than other people. And I'm saying, like, what do you mean? Like, oh, well, they just kind of walk around like they own everything. You know, there's just kind of this strong, confident sense of, I haven't been here before, but here I am, and recognize me. I'm confident. And so this sense of walking, identification with a culture and people, that there's a strong connection between how you walk and your family, whether it's genetic or learned or seen, whatever that is. Um, and here in this text, we're actually beginning and continuing this transition through the book of Ephesians, that Ephesians 1 through 3 was all about the definitive work of God in history to conquer sin and death, to apply redemption to his people, such that by grace alone, through faith alone, people can be saved and incorporated into what he's doing, that that was determined before the foundation of the world, and that by grace alone, not with any merit so that nobody could boast, people can become part of his church. And so Ephesians 1 through 3 is all about the definitive work of God by grace alone to save his people. However, there's a bit of a turning point in Ephesians 4, where now it's no longer this abstract concept of God's gracious work in history, but now it's kind of working it into where the rubber meets the road and how this plays out in the functional day-to-day -day of life. And the primary metaphor that Paul uses for walking in this newness is the idea of walking. Look with me, Ephesians 4, verse 1. It says, I therefore, so now because of all of that gospel stuff we've covered in these last 20-something weeks, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And so what's happening is we talked about who we are in Christ and who Christ has made us by grace alone. You don't earn your way in. You only get adopted in by grace. But now, because you're part of this new family, because you have this new identity in Christ, there are ethical implications or moral implications for how you ought to be as a person. And so Ephesians 4, the beginning, talks about the first implication of this work of grace is that you would be unified. And so unified in this sense of the book of Ephesians is not just like a hold hands, kumbaya party, let's all be friends, but it's unified in terms of function and being a functioning, working, unified whole, that we would function as a body with bones and ligaments and joints and hearts and eyes and ears, that we would be knit together, operating in a unified direction as one body. And so that's unity. The next part we're moving into now is sexual ethics. 
So good morning. We're talking about sexual ethics today. This is one of the benefits of preaching verse by verse through the Bible is you get to talk about stuff that's uncomfortable and it's there in the text and so we're going to talk about it this morning. So what this is talking about is no longer walking as the Gentiles do, but instead walking as you now are. And so Gentiles here in this text, it's kind of ironic because I'm actually Jewish and all of you are probably Gentiles except for maybe one or two of them. So like in a, in a very basic sense, Gentiles just means not Jews. It's the word ethne or ethnic people. And so it's the non-Jews. So don't walk as the Gentiles. But in this text in particular, what it's talking about is you all used to be Gentiles. Now you're Christians. So your blanket identity used to come from where you grew up and how you talked and how you walked. But now you're going to walk differently because of who you are in Christ. So Gentiles here is operating to speak about who you were before you were converted compared to who you are now as a follower of Jesus. And so this whole text is going to talk to us about how to walk. And what we're going to see in this text is that all of us still have many ways in which we walk like Gentiles. We walk like the people we used to be before we were in Christ. And so I'm going to invite you all to pray with me, and then we're going to be convicted and encouraged by this text together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the fact that you have worked definitively in history, that you have made a way where there was no way, that you have incorporated us into your family by grace through faith. Um, I pray that as we walk through the second half of the book of Ephesians, we'd really keep that in mind, that this wouldn't just become a moralistic list of things we need to fix about ourselves, but rather there'd be ways that we can consistently live out our identity that you've given to us. Amen. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about walking in the major sense. And so our first point is how not to walk, which is given to us in verses 17 through 20. Um, And the first point we see here is we shouldn't walk with naivety or being naive, that is uninformed or um, not knowing the things which are made plain. So now this I say, verse 17, and testify in in the Lord. No longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So the mind is their ability to make sense of the world that is outside of them. It's the interpretive grid that we use to connect the dots about what's going on. It's, it's a worldview, but it's not explicitly intellectual as much as it's an instinct or a disposition, a way of making sense of what's going on around us. So our mind is the way that we cerebrally make sense of the world all around us. And what it's saying is when you don't know Christ, when you're unconverted, you have futility of your mind, meaning that the world is a created space. All atoms, electrons, Matter, plants, animals, land, sea, the mountains, the grass, it's created. And so if you don't recognize it as created and inhabited by God and by his, by his people, you're going to seriously misinterpret what reality is. You're going to miss the point. You're going to miss the mark. And so there's futility in your mind when you try and make sense of the world apart from the fact of its created identity. So they have this futility in their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. There's a dimmer switch with which we have the capacity to make sense of the world around us. And if you're dismissing God, you're dismissing the most fundamental part of reality, the creator, the designer, the sovereign controller, the one who upholds and makes possible all things that happen. And so there's a dimmer switch reality to our capacity to make sense of the world apart from Christ. It's not pure darkness, but it's severely 
darkened. Um, this darkness of the understanding, alienated from the life of God. So life of God being this connection to him, life with him. So we're separated from connection to God because of the ignorance that is in them. So ignorance here meaning not knowing things. They don't know. So when you're not a Christian, you don't know about the creator God who loves you and designed you and built you and shaped you and formed you and has intentions for you and extends grace to you and has instruction for you and is inviting you in on the basis of grace. And so there's literally things you don't know about. So it's not saying their IQs are lower because that's obviously not true. Not like we're, there's a lot of really sharp people who are not Christians and you all aren't 120 IQ people, you know, but it's, it's not they're ignorant in general, but they're ignorant of the things of God, the things of the gospel. And so when I first read this text, I'm kind of going like, man, this is kind of a rough treatment. It's kind of a harsh couple verses. You know, words like futility, darkened, alienated, ignorant are not compliment words or, ordinarily. And so I'm kind of going, man, this is kind of Paul being harsh on them, but I think what Paul's actually doing here is he's building empathy for us for these people who are wandering in darkness. When you think about the crazy people on the news saying crazy things, and you talk to people and you're like, I didn't know people could be this dumb. You know, that happens sometimes. It's really easy for us as people in general, and Christians in particular, to just look at the insanity of the world and feel self-righteous and superior. But what Paul is calling us to do is actually feel a great degree of empathy. Like there's some people walking with the lights on and some people walking around with the lights off. And so, of course, they're bumbling, bumping into things. And even for us as Christians, we have the lights on, but sometimes we choose to close our eyes and walk around. And so there's this real kind of self-defeating thing here. And so this naivety should not be seen as a judgment or a condemnation on them, but rather an explanation of their behavior. And these poor people are trying to exist with the lights off. They're denying this huge sphere of reality. And what's crazy, too, is I think that most of us as Christians spend most of our times, most of our lives, deciding to live in this naivety. If I asked you, what percentage of your day do you think you spend regularly aware of the fact that God is present with you, that he's creator over all the things that you're doing, and that his gospel has made you secure and loved? What percentage of your day are you actively aware of that reality? I feel like you're doing really well if you say like 10%. Like that's pretty good. Like, man, 10% of the time, I'm in tune with God's presence. Or even 50% of the time, I'm in tune with God's presence. Like what does that really functionally look like? And so what it's saying here is that just kind of recognize that, yes, the Gentiles are darkened, but a lot of you walk like Gentiles all the time, just not aware of God's presence, kind of living as these functional atheists. And so I think that most Christians spend most of their days and most of their lives living as functional atheists atheists. And I know that, and I believe that partly because that's true of me as well. You just kind of go about bumbling your life. The lights may be on, but my eyes are closed, and I'm not regularly aware of the fact that there's a gracious king sovereignly upholding things and involved in my day-to-day life. So what, what percentage did you write? What, what would you say? 50%, 20%? 
Either way, kind of the point is the Gentiles have to be like this, but as Christians, we choose to be like that all the time. We kind of just drift away from awareness of God's presence, and we walk in this naivety. So don't walk like that. Don't do that. If you're not aware of God's presence, stop it. That's kind of the, the yeah. It'll get better there, so don't worry about that. All right, so naive. The next thing is that they're numb. There's a numbness, a disaffectedness, an unfeeling sense to what's going on here. So they're hardness of their heart. You know, having a heart that's regularly soft is a painful way of existing in the world because the world is a painful place. People experience pain. When you have a soft heart, you empathize and connect with their pain, therefore it causes you pain. And so the softer your heart, generally speaking, the harder your life. And so when you don't want to feel that pain anymore, you start to harden your heart so you don't feel the pain of empathy. Likewise, it says they've become calloused. So calluses are good. They're supposed to protect you from pain. However, over time, they lead to this, they actually dehumanize you because your hands are supposed to feel things. And if your hand has a one-inch callus on it, you, you can no longer feel things. And so this numbness is actually a way of feeling less. And so a lot of us, whether it's emotional pain or physical pain or spiritual pain or history of trauma, um, we need to do this work of recognizing the fact that we have numbed ourselves off to feeling the pain of the world and that part of walking in maturity is actually feeling more pain for the brokenness of the world. It's getting rid of those calluses. And so the result here is they're calloused, meaning that they probably initially felt this great sense of conviction over their sinfulness or the things they were doing. But over time, they kept repeating the same sins, they kept repeating the same lies, they kept walking as they're walking, and eventually the things they once felt convicted for now are just normalized and are just part of my daily routine. This happens fairly regularly. You know, the first time you lie to your spouse, there's this conviction. But the 300th time you lie to your spouse, it's just what you do now. You don't feel it anymore. The first time you drink too much, I shouldn't have drank too much. The 300th time you drank too much, oh, it's just what I do now. See, the sense of conviction over time, because we build up calluses to our sin. The first time you let your gaze wander at that person you work with, the 300th time you don't feel the sting. The first time you cheat on your taxes, the last time you cheat on your taxes. You know, you know, maybe they, didn't, they don't deserve my money anyway. You start rationalizing the, uh, the immorality. So this callousness is actually, in this text, a way of feeling less conviction over the things that you used to feel conviction for. I was mentoring a guy one time who was struggling with pornography. That's what he said. I think he was just looking at pornography and saying he was struggling with looking at pornography. Um, it's kind of like he had the like St. Augustine said, Lord, make me sexually pure, but just not yet. That was kind of his, his uh, ethos, you know. I kind of sh- feel like I should be- feel bad for this, so I'm going to say I feel bad for this, but really I'm just kind of giving looks. So he was regularly looking at, like, 19 years old, multiple times a week. on a, And then eventually one time he forgot to delete his Internet history, and his younger sister got on his computer, and that was like the full spread, you know, and she went ballistic on him, appropriately so. Like, I thought you were, but you are. You say that, but you. And uh, he came to me and told me about how he felt judged by his sister and how she was legalistic. And I told him, no, 
you're calloused, she's uncalloused. You should pray to feel like she feels about your sin. Let this be a revelation of God to you, that you felt like she feels the first time you looked at that. But now you've kind of pretty successfully developed some calluses and doesn't sting that much anymore. So we walk, we're not Gentiles anymore, but we still walk like Gentiles. What are, you know, there's a list of a hundred things. All of us have calluses, normative patterns of sin that we've stopped feeling as bad about. What are your calluses? What's the thing that you wished you felt worse about, but now you kind of feel whatever about? Maybe you kind of throw words like grace at it. Like, oh, grace, that's why I don't feel bad. Grace doesn't make you feel less bad about sin. Grace just makes you not be the recipient of the punishment of your sin. So we should, conviction is healthy, it's a gift, it's normal. Pain reflexes are good, they protect you from things. So we should pray that we'd have our calluses taken off. I, I regularly, when I'm, when I'm preaching, um, one of the things I do is I pray for illustrations about some of the more powerful images and words, and Calus is a powerful image and word. So I was praying about it on Tuesday morning. I'm praying for this Sunday, and then I went to the gym, and I um, uh, was doing a rope climb, and a big callus ripped off on my hand, like stingy blood type stuff. And I came down, and my first thought was like, I should have been filing those calluses off. You know, I usually have pumice stone, and I grind them off. But eventually they build up real big, and then you're supposed to like grind them off, but I just neglected that daily work for a couple weeks, and then rip. It was, not a, it was an unpleasant experience, I'll say that. And then after that, I said, I should have filed those off. I thought, thank you, Lord, for this illustration on Sunday, um, <laughs> because we need to be daily grinding off our calluses, otherwise they'll get really big, and we won't feel things, and eventually there'll be some serious blow up where you get caught. And some of us in this room probably just need to, on purpose, have a rip the callous off experience because you haven't felt conviction for a long time. This is one of the reasons why I think confession of sin is so important. And not confession of sin of, I'm going to tell my friend who's going to go like, hey, it's okay, bro, we all struggle. But I mean confession of sin where someone helps you See your sin through God's eyes. Some of us in this room probably need to tell our spouse some things. Some of us in this room probably need to tell, need to send me to the pastor, but you got to get that callus off. It needs to happen. So what happens when you develop calluses and you're naive and you're numb um, is that you become nihilistic. You give up. This is exactly what this text is talking about. They have become callous and have given themselves up. Another way of translating that, like they themselves gave up they gave themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That there's a strong sense in which once I um, dismiss and become and fall out of awareness of God's presence and his role in the world, then I numb myself up to feeling conviction over sin and I numb myself over the sense of my ability to connect with other people and I'm disaffected. Now my natural tendency is to want to feel things and because I've so successfully stopped feeling things. And so now I'm going to give myself to that which gives me bodily sensation and pleasure and that's sensuality. So sensuality is not sexuality. Sexuality is inherently good, especially um, 
when we recognize the fact that we are created sexually differentiated people designed to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage. But sensuality is when you overly sexualize the body and it just becomes a thing to be consumed. Both allowing myself to be consumed and the consumption of other people. And so what naturally happens is when you dismiss the creator, the most fundamental part of all of reality, the next best thing to worship is actually the image of the creator, people's bodies. So the more secular we become as people, as individuals, the more dismissive of the reality of God, the more natural it is going to be to worship the image of God, to take in and participate in whatever it looks like for us to give ourselves over to sensuality. Greedy to practice every type of impurity. So the overwhelming thrust here is we see this kind of trajectory that Paul's painting a picture of, like these, these Gentiles... We shouldn't just like be mad at them for being sensuous, but rather we should have a degree of empathy of like, man, they've dismissed the present work of God, so the lights are off. They're, they're numbing themselves up, and so now they're just kind of going like, whatever, I guess I'll just give in. And that's a trajectory I see in my own life. Whenever I find myself in sin, whatever it is, it usually begins with this type of thing. I fall out of awareness of God's presence. I say, eh, what does it matter anyway? And then I sin. Naive, numb, nihilistic. Um, one of the commentaries I read said that nihilism always produces hedonism. Nihilism being nothing matters, nothing happens when I die. Hedonism being so I might as well just live for the moment. Nihilism leads to hedonism. And so I think what Paul is getting for us here is like we should have empathy for people trapped in this and not just like write them off as like some political agenda. It's so easy to get emotionally all enraged about the people in our culture who are pushing their sexuality agendas. And rather just go like, of course they're doing that. What else would they be doing? And trying to treat the sensuality apart from the functional atheism is ludicrous. It's not going to happen. We can still witness to biblical sexuality, but we shouldn't be surprised by the fact that people become sensuous when they dismiss the created reality. So that's a normal slide. So what are the things that uh, you've given yourself up to, that you've given up? I guess it's just a part of my life now. I guess it's just what I do. Are there counsels you've developed? Are there areas where you're purposefully a functional atheist? Because you can't be mindful of God's presence and keep doing the things you're doing. Because we all have ways that we're still walking like Gentiles. And so we can't just say, like, that's an out there problem, but it's an in here problem. So that's how not to walk. Now we're going to talk about how to walk, how to walk in this newness. And so verse 22 says this, to put off your old Self, which belongs to your former matter, your Gentile ways of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So desires aren't bad. Deceitful desires 
are bad. So what we want in ourselves is actually a problem. This is where we need to be really careful and nuanced. I hear a lot of times people say like, well, I'm just being myself. And I'm saying, that's fine. Repent of yourself. <laughs> you know? Well, that's just my personality, especially like big kind of bombastic dominating people who tend to kind of train wreck people with their personalities. Like, oh, it's just my personality. I'm going like, yeah, part of your old self. Change your personality. Change who you are. Stop being like that. I'm not denying that it's your personality. I'm saying your personality is sinful. Repent of it. Change it. Put it off. So this old self, new self thing, we need to recognize that we should say, just be yourself, when we're talking about the new self, the created self, the one that's being made into the image of God, the one that's designed by God. But we should not say, just be yourself, when it talks about capitulating to sinful desires and kind of just saying, whatever, I'll just be how I am. We have this dual self thing, our old self and our, and our new self, and in this present reality until Jesus comes back, we're constantly kind of warring between those two selves. And it's not just an out there problem, it's an in here problem. In particular, um, as it relates to the sensuality and this old self dominating, the fact that so many Christians don't put off their old self, but say they're Christians and still go around walking in this old self this formal deceitful desires thing. I asked a number of pastors this week, what percentage of men in the church do you think struggle with pornography? Talk about giving yourself over to sensuality, walking in light of the old self. There's a hundred things you could talk about besides pornography, but pornography is kind of the very visible tip of the iceberg here. The lowest answer I got, asking a plurality of pastors, what percentage of men in the church do you think struggle with pornography? The lowest answer was 50%. Some answered 90%. I talked with uh, one of my friends who's a therapist who regularly works with um, domestic abuse victims. And she said 100% of domestic abuse cases in her experience involve pornography. Someone's looking at porn. They're not good odds. So 50 to 90%, we clearly keep walking like Gentiles as Christians. I, I think about this and I think, like, how seriously do we take our new identity in Christ? How seriously do we take the fact that women are designed by God, not necessarily for our consumption, but our sisterhood? How seriously do we take this if we just kind of go, like, oh, well, we all struggle, bro? Nonsense. We think about what if Redemption Gateway became a place where all the men had dumb phones instead of smartphones? because we took so seriously purity? What if every person here had Disney Circle accountability software on their home? What do you lose if you give up your smartphone? You lose regular access to email and social media. It's probably good for you anyway. You lose convenience, a couple hundred bucks. What do you gain? Purity, holiness, intimacy with your wife. 
what if, there's like as a rule of thumb, if you're kind of wondering, is he talking about me, is he not talking about me, I'll say this. If you looked at porn in the last 30 days on your phone, get a dumb phone. What do you have to lose? What do you have to gain? See, a lot of times what happens, this is an example, but other examples as well, is we start to think about the cost of holiness, what I'm going to have to give up to do this. Start to think about, man, but that'd be really inconvenient. Start to think about, well, that'd cost me some extra money. Start to think about, man, that would involve some pain. And I say, like, yes, absolutely. Talk about the daily practice of cutting off my calluses. That's part of the Christian life, that God is not overwhelmingly concerned with our happiness, but he's overwhelmingly concerned with our holiness. And he is more than willing to sacrifice our fleeting happiness for the sake of our long-term holiness. Um, Samuel Chan says this, growth equals change, change equals loss, loss equals pain, so inevitably growth, growth equals pain. He's a leadership guru. This involves holiness as well. You will not grow unless you embrace change. You will not change unless you embrace loss, giving things up, and you will not embrace giving things up unless you embrace pain. This is part of the deal. What are some of the things that you need to lose in order to pursue holiness? Is it your smartphone? Is it your Wednesday morning prayer group that's actually just a gossip group? Is it your subscription to People magazine? Is it your Instagram account? Whatever it is, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Put off the old self. Now, kind of the, the question here is, so we're putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And so look at what this text says with me right here. It says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. This is kind of an interesting thing because Paul is commanding a passive verb. He's commanding us, be renewed passive. How can I do what is something that has to happen to me? How can I command myself to grow when in fact God causes the growth? This is kind of part of the tension is we cannot cause our growth. We cannot cause our maturation. We cannot cause our renewal. However, what we can do is place ourselves in environments and situations and practice habits and disciplines that enable God to work and give space for God to work in our hearts and in our minds. So the mind is this series or these connections of habits and dispositions. You know, the neurons that fire together, pathway together. You know, we have these neural pathways that are like water running down a hill. There's, you know, um, streams that form into crevices that form into um, canyons. And so we are all the sum total, in many ways, the, the history of our habits and patterns, disciplines, and memories. And so if we want to be changed in a real functional sense, we must practice new habits and new disciplines. This is one of the reasons why regular prayer, regular Bible reading, regular church attendance, um, being connected into community is all these environments suit to help us be renewed in the spirit of our minds. That I must commit to raising the sails in order for the wind to move my ship. I must commit to planting the seeds, pulling the weeds, and watering the garden, even though I recognize that only God makes those seeds grow that my habits and my disciplines are a vital part of me being renewed in the spirit of my mind. I can't take credit for that growth, but 
part of what I bring to the table is a lack of passivity and rather an engaged, disciplined participation in my heart and soul being made new. That I is a command to put off the old and put on the new, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And if we fall into kind of some type of like fatalistic, well, God is sovereign, so we'll see what happens, we're rejecting our responsibility as people of God. Put off the old, put on the new, embrace the loss. And so lastly, what we're going to see here is the why. Because if we just listen to my sermon up to this point, it could be a very just kind of moralistic list. Stop doing those things, start doing those things. Be different. Feel different, look different. But I want us to see Paul's heart for us in this text is not just be different because I said so, not just be different because God said so, even though that should probably be enough. Why should I do this? Because God's God and you're not, period, the end. That should be enough. But God gives us more than that to help us be motivated to walk in holiness, to put off the old, to not be like the Gentiles, and to walk as new creations. So the first thing that he does is he reminds us that we have this new classroom. So we have all learned our behaviors and dispositions and beliefs from somewhere. What I hear a lot of times is, well, I just want my children to kind of be raised neutrally and decide for themselves. That's not a possibility. There is no neutrality. We have all learned ethics, morals, worldviews, teachings, dispositions from somewhere. Most of us, it's our parents, and sometimes it's popular culture. But what Paul is saying here is, verse 20, that is not the way you learned Christ. You have a new teacher in a new classroom that Isaiah prophesied a time when the people would be taught by God themselves, that Christ is our rabbi, he is our teacher, he is our instructor, that he has come near to us and spoken to us. And so what Paul's saying is you don't have to sit under this school of thought 